creeds and criticism meet. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And today we have our guest, Dr. Mimi Haddad of CBE. Yeah, so um, Mimi is the president of Christians for Biblical Equality International. Uh, She's got a PhD in historical theology from the University of Durham. And she's written more than 100 academic and popular level articles and blogs. And I think, you know, contributed over like 12 books. Um, She's also a consultant on gender for World Vision, International, um, World Relief, and Beyond Borders. And lastly, adjunct professor at Fuller Seminary. Woo, my alma mater. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Mimi. Hi, Mimi. Welcome Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. And yeah, I've I've worked with Mimi for a long time. <laughs> um, Mimi, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, or especially for people that don't know you. Yeah, your your faith background, especially. How did you come to kind of be where you are today? Yeah, well, <clears throat> my family um, comes from Paris and Beirut, Lebanon, respectively, and so I um, we we are my family from Lebanon especially goes way back to the early centuries and my grandmother was part of the Maronite church in Lebanon and so Christianity goes deep in our roots and in our blood and I became really active in my faith in high school through young life and then in college and I was fortunate enough to attend a Baptist church in my undergraduate years where the pastor was a member of CBE. Oh wow, oh wow. (laughs) Yeah, and I remember early on, he, my very best friend in college was probably the best Bible teacher in the church, and when she and her husband married, and he was heading off to do his doctorate in engineering, this wonderful Baptist pastor, as they were pulling out of the parking lot, put his fingers on her window and said, Please, please, Suzette, teach Bible. It's your gift. It's your calling. You are so lucid. You're the Mm. best Bible teacher we have. Promise me you'll teach Bible wherever you go. And that image just stuck with me because her husband went on to become a professor of engineering and a researcher, and yet she really was equally uh, the force in the family for pedagogy and theology. She lived her faith so well and taught scripture so clearly and there was never really in our church at least there was at the time there was never really this pink and blue atmosphere in in christian culture that set in in my world at least later on Mm. so um but after finishing undergrad and going off to graduate school I noticed the church that I was part of, which, by the way, was pastored um, by the current president of Fuller, Mark Laberton in Berkeley. (laughs) 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 Um, Our denomination, the PCUSA, 
at the time, ordained the first woman in the area, and she was a woman of color, and, you know, was not widely, um, there was a battle, really, an undercurrent of some who agreed with the ordination of women and others who did not see it on the pages of scripture. And I always found myself in conversations with people on the, on the fringes in church about theology, and my husband my later-to-be husband was more interested in the cooking, and the, <laughs> we just did not have we did not have typical gender roles. Allison, you know Dale, yeah, yeah, and, and Nick too. Mm-hmm. I mean, he will talk to you for hours about the New York Times mm. recipe list. He's just absolutely fascinated. He, he's by very dreamy. Yes, I, I love talking with Dale about food. I would love to <laughs> eat some of Dale's food one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a typical foodie, and. Um, it just fascinates him, and he's works in agriculture, so he likes from the farm to the table kind of concept. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's just wonderful. So that's sort of my journey in an airplane ride. I resisted this idea that our vocation and calling, even our identity, can be located in our materiality and our embodiment as women or men and uh, or eth- ethnic uh, origins and. I think that's been a battle the church has faced all through history. How do you know a believer? How do you identify a follower of Christ? Mm. And I think that, you know, and I, I go back again and again to Paul's sort of manifesto of Christian identity, summarized in Galatians 3, 27 through 30, but then, of course, expounded widely through his letters, and especially in Romans. And so every, all of us are putting on Christ every day, which we try to put on Christ every day. But that putting on of Christ and that living and walking in newness of life really is enriched by our ethnic um, background. It's enriched by our experiences as men and women, but it is never limited by those. Or reduced, yeah. Um, or reduced, yeah, thank you. Hmm. And so just... Sensing an aliveness in my spirit whenever these issues were raised and jumping into the fray as these issues were raised sort of carried me forward in my my profession at CBE. Wow, so how did you actually become the president of CBE? Hmm. (laughs) Well, I was studying at Gordon-Conwell and took my New Testament at Harvard, and I was waiting for the library, Harvard's uh, Divinity School Library, to open. And I was sitting out on, I think, a rock in the sunshine, and Kathy Krager walked by. Mm. And I had, I had met her at Gordon-Conwell. She led chapel one morning, and I noticed that a number of the faculty at Gordon-Conwell at the time were strangely missing in that chapel, she led and later found out it was they just did not support her view of women's shared leadership. So as she was walking through the, she's the first person through the front door of the library, I said, wait a minute, are you Kathy Krager? And she said, oh, yes. And why don't we meet at lunchtime? I have two sandwiches and I will share one with you. <laughs> so that's how our friendship began. And I was on student council at the time and we were able to lobby the board to hire Kathy. And they did. And she became, she taught her first class on women in the early church over a summer term. And the head of Christian thought began attending. And although he had not, he really was 
not supportive of CVE's mission, by the end of the summer, he was. Kathy had won him over. And Mm. he's now a a dear friend and works, he's published many times with CBE since I became president. Mm. And as Kathy was retiring as president, she um, asked me if I would like to consider that position and the board approved it. And that's where I've been. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the um, the history of CBE? How, how did it get started? And what are kind of its theological kind of roots or foundations for what CBE is today? Yeah, especially since a lot of people are aware of like current waves of feminism, they don't realize how this started or where CBE fits in. Okay, that's a great question. Yeah, so let's put it on a historical continuum. Um, <laughs> the founders launched CBE when they were in their late 60s, early 70s, founders meaning Catherine Clark Kreger, Elvira Michelson, and Gretchen Gableine Hall. We've, we lo- we've lost all three of them. Uh, they've gone to be with Christ. And What year was that, they, too, that CBE started? In 1988. It was incorporated as a nonprofit. Thank you. And the founders were deeply troubled by the pink and blue spheres in Christian life and in the church particularly. And Gretchen Gableine Hall is a great example of this. Her father was Frank Gableine, uh, who was the great educator both at Stony Brook Christian Academy and also in Christian, as a, one of the founders of Christianity Today. Um, he's written, I don't know how many commentaries, um, a whole series by Frank Gableine Hall. And Gretchen told me once that as she was a little girl growing up with her father. She remembers her parents saying to her, it is your responsibility as a follower of Christ to identify your gifts and abilities and to fan it into flame with every ounce of power you have. Mm-hmm. And Gretchen and Alvira were the same. Alvira Michelson's mother was the best Bible teacher in her um, Baptist church here in the prairies in the Midwest. And occasionally, as pastors would change in the church, one would come in who supported her Bible teaching, another would come in and remove her from her Bible class. And then the church was upset because she was the best Bible teacher. Mm. And so the three founders were convinced that marginalizing the gifts God had given women would do would have a devastating impact on the church. And in many ways, they align themselves with the theological and social practices of the early evangelicals. They stood very much on the shoulders of people like Catherine Bushnell, who believed that activism included social activism and evangelism. They were one thing that could not be separated. And for the early evangelicals and the founders of CBE, to remove women from positions of leadership placed the church at risk for abuse because women were always closest to the suffering in the world. And we yeah. see this on the mission field and in NGO work. You yank them off the post that God had put them on and, and, and lesser, lesser gods fill in, so to speak. Hmm. And so even Virginia Patterson, who was at one time President of our board for over 12 years, she had originally been a missionary with a well-known evangelical mission society before becoming president of Pioneer Clubs. 
And our intelligence, the intelligence of the United States would interview women missionaries all over the field to say, what are the humanitarian issues you're facing here? These were the people who provided direct feedback to our government on humanitarian um, issues around the world because they were granular with the lives of girls and women. And, of course, we see this in places in Iraq. We'll get to that later. So these founders thought that it was biblically errant and incoherent to elevate maleness over character and that God had gifted and called women equally. And this idea of shared authority is supported both by Paul and the entire canon. And they decided that an organization was necessary to begin laying these theological foundations uh, and publishing them and making them available to those who were facing, uh, had similar concerns in their churches and organizations. So the organ- CBE launched in 1987, first by publishing Priscilla Papers, which mm. I believe both of you have published articles in. Yep. Yes. Yep. And believe it or not, the Priscilla Papers <laughs> get... To this day, 100,000 hits nice. a day on the web. So it's really oh, wow. widely read. And so we were known early on for our academic think tank work on gender and faith. So we incorporated, they incorporated, and we began publishing our academic journal. We soon added a popular magazine for people who, who didn't really um, want to go quite as deep or didn't have the time. We immediately began publishing conferences, hosting conferences every single year, one in the U.S., one abroad, and then local chapters set up around the world. And that's really where we, how we started. So just be a resource entity for Christians interested on the role of men and women in the church. That's a really significant, too. Um, recently I read... The Gospel According to Eve um, by, I don't remember how to pronounce her last name, but Amanda um, Ben-Coyson, is it? Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, she, in there she talks about how every, every time in history there's a, there's a female scholar, biblical scholar, they have to almost reinvent the wheel and realize, oh my gosh, you know, the Bible's not teaching gender hierarchy. Um, and but then it gets lost, and then the next woman's not aware of the history before that. And I think something that CBE has done is really make this stuff widely available, so that female scholars have basically a whole bunch of um, resources and history at their disposal. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been in places working with Lausanne in places like um, Thailand, where leaders would come from Tibet, Nepal. And they would tell me, you know, I, I became an egalitarian and shifted our organization along egalitarian lines by reading your resources online. Yeah. And, and just recently I've been on a sort of long road trip between Florida and Colorado. And every single time I meet with a group, it's always the same thing. Your resources are what really changed my life. And so I have to believe that um, God is really using me in this way. And it just... I'd love to say that we've come to a point where we can close down. It's no longer necessary. But I think, I mean, perhaps you agree with me. You see a resurgence of uh, male headship thinking uh, in the church. It's it's a beast unwilling to die quickly. Yeah, I, I see. I don't see the numbers there, but I see the voices getting louder. And so, mm. at least in my 
my friends and my circles and where I kind of tend to hang out, there does seem to be a very... There's a shift. There's a positive shift that's happening. Um, so they don't have the same numbers that they did even, say, like five years ago. Right. Um, and in part, I think just the explosion of egalitarianism on the internet, too, has made a lot of the stuff that was that CBE has contributed um, widely available, just knowledge-wise. Right. And, and a lot of people are... And, I mean, the fact that you have complementarians like Owen Strawn and others kind of bending over backwards to use egalitarian language, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not he, he means what we mean when we say that sort of stuff, but the fact that you see egalitarian language being used, I mean, for example, mm-hmm. we see brothers and sisters being used in chapel at, yep. you know, very mm-hmm. conservative complementarian seminaries. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's it's, in, it's one of those things It's they've already kind of, they're already moving towards us in that sense. I think just in terms of the rhetoric that's used and the common cultural stuff. And it's usually this kind of very benign male headship that gets espoused that most people are willing to kind of go with, but the harder complementarian stuff seems to be kind of at least being pushed aside mostly by at least some complementarians I know attempting to Mm -hmm. basically clean house, Um, not to be crass about it, but that's kind of the idea I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, one place where I'm really taking um, great hope, and, and that is in the world of um, he, the humanitarian efforts by egalitarians. Yeah. And and you know that's where the data is super clear that um, groups like the Gates Foundation and others, World Bank, the uh, International Monetary Fund, these groups are realizing that without gender equality, humanitarian efforts cannot be leveraged. Mm. successfully and mm. completely and and groups that are reluctant to do that on the field really worsen the plight of girls and women worldwide and so that's where we have some very convincing uh, information and data and co- colleagues who are pulling together and here's a quick example of uh, one of our colleagues that we partner with and have for you know over six years in East Africa um, had been invited to a, a few countries away where he had an opportunity to teach uh, gender equality as a biblical ideal. And it made a significant impact in their humanitarian work among girls and women who had been raped uh, as a weapon of war. Mm. And this had a ripple effect back to the U.S. in their headquarters, which are in, the organization is not egalitarian, but the VPs came up to me at one of the Accord Network conferences and said, we heard what happened in East Africa when one of your egalitarian advocates, colleagues, came to our country and taught biblical gender equality for our staff and the impact it had on their work and I will do everything in my power to see this continues. Wow. And so that's a significant shift in human flourishing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we're we're seeing that too, I think, on the on the seminary level. I mean in the scholarly world you have I mean the fact that Wheaton College or Gordon Conwell or any of the so called I mean you have institutions like Fuller which are uh, avowed egalitarian, like that's something you have to sign off on um, in order to be a professor there. But in and, they, and they and they teach you. They ask you every three years. Even me, they ask me every three years. Yep. Yes. Go yes. ahead. And uh, but we're seeing places even at Wheaton College or Gordon Conwell or even you know other institutions that are quote more um, more conservative 
like regent, you, you don't see the sort of, oh, we only hire complementarians. It's something where like Beast and Divinity School mm. has egalitarians on, on faculty. And they're, you're seeing kind of a, you know, even if this isn't, I mean, in the 1980s and 90s, back when, you know, um, RBMW and all the other organizations were kind of making their push, you know, the idea mm -hmm. of hiring an egalitarian on staff was unthinkable. And now it's, well, it's, it's an issue where many are willing to debate, and you're not a bad Christian for believing it, which is, again, a really huge step in terms of evangelical um, identity, which I think is really a positive thing that CBE has done. I appreciate that, because there are days where you, <laughs> yeah. you, you wonder if you could absolutely face any more frustration, and then you hear, you hear stories like the one you just told, Nick, which I, I think is true on the on the on the sixty thousand foot viewpoint, right. you know, people really want to honor God. They want to know that their position on any major issue or minor issue is something that brings God pleasure. And CBE has done the important work for decades to make that clear. And I I think about the abolitionists who fought so hard to argue that slavery is not a biblical ideal; it's a cultural consequence of sin. Yeah. And you know, the abolitionists put their fingers on the plow and it just went flying ahead of them because the devastating consequences of that power imbalance. And we see that now in the Me Too consequences where there's just unleashed power in the hands of really both egalitarian and complementarian megachurch communities. But we understand that our own country, let's just say, has some patriarchal baggage to clean up. Yeah, we're one of the few that haven't actually had a female president yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this isn't me taking a position, a, a particular political position, but all this to say, like, the yeah. conditions that are, would be necessary in order to have, you know, a female president come about are just not there in ways that are in other countries, even countries that tend to be a lot more... I think overtly patriarchal, which is interesting um, and curious to me itself. <laughs> well, one thing that the World Bank discovered not so long ago, and they, they published this widely, is that over 82% of the world's people uh, adhere to religious teachings. So that we are, you know, as Augustine said, <laughs> we, we are souls that long to worship a higher being, a, a worship God. And that's why speaking for God, as the pro-slavery camp did, or speaking for God, as the complementarians do, um, to advance a power imbalance that exists worldwide is a very dangerous place to be unless you're absolutely sure. But the world's people want to see that their life is pleasing to God because they believe that God speaks to them. And that's why this linking of God's word to advance a power differential where women and, and, and slaves had suffered so much yeah. is, a, is a very important issue to critique biblically. Yeah, and that gets into fundamental worldviews and um, way of seeing the world. And it can take a variety of forms. Like um, the, the link within a lot of these church communities is patriarchy. But it doesn't have to. Like, you can have people that, um, I guess at least in word, have a egalitarian 
you know, perspective, but when you look into their actual practice, it's very different. So it could be a cult of personality. It could be, mm-hmm. it could be a number of things that hold up, prop up this abusive system. Well, I, I, someone told me once that they read a study and I've asked them to send it to me. I haven't received it yet and I'm unable to find it, but it was something like mega churches <clears throat> need a narcissist and a narcissist needs huh. a mega church. Every and narcissist these, needs their own mega church. It's true. So tell me about your egalitarian journey. How did you two become, I think I know, but, but let's hear it again. Well, I, I met Allison, and she basically challenged me to look at the Bible because, you know, she's like, have you ever heard of Deborah? And I was like, I, I have no idea who this, this woman Deborah is. So um, I was like, okay, well, I, I need to think about this because I was definitely not raised in a uh, egalitarian uh, uh, environment. My church background most assuredly was not and is not egalitarian. Um, and I took uh, Ron Pierce's Theology of Gender class at Biola. And he and he didn't answer every question I had, but at, at the end of it, I'm like, you know, I don't know what to do with one Timothy two, and Ephesians five looks a little bit weird to me, but everything else seems to suggest this. So basically, I don't have to have every answer or every question answered in order to kind of go the yeah, I'm seventy here, so yeah, that basically makes me an egalitarian. So um, it wasn't really until I read Philip Payne um, in his book on um, women in ministry that kind of was like, oh, that that answered up any sort of lingering questions I had. But that was a process of probably three to five years of, of really studying it mm-hmm. and researching it and, you know, wanting to be faithful. Um, and, you know, that comes with its own host of consequences trying to be faithful. But that's basically my story in a nutshell. Yeah, and I told him, like, I'm getting an M- MDiv, like, what what if I, I went into pastoral ministry one day, you know, or, you know, even just led, you know, church, because, you know, I would lead talks at my church, and I said... I don't remember even being bothered by that, was he, it? Yeah, so he wasn't bothered by it. He said, like, that he would support me, but even though he didn't really know what he thought about women in ministry, even though he was kind of default complementarian. And I told him, well, you better figure it out, because people will be coming to you. Yep. <laughs> and they did. Good. Like, I became like, he became the guy with the girlfriend, even though they didn't really know me. Um, so I was like, because you're supposed to be, quote, our, the leader, people are going to assume weird mm-hmm. stuff about us. Like, just yeah. telling you. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, my, um, my background was different. Um, so I would say uh, my church background was uh, egalitarian. Um Little did I know, actually, um, the current senior pastor of our church, um, she had actually laid a lot of the groundwork for my tr- my my church at the time when I was younger being egalitarian in the first place. And so did uh, Lee McDonald later as the senior pastor. And so when I got there, um, I, I was basically in an egalitarian church. Um, the associate pastor was a woman, and I mean, she's the one that married Nick and I yep. um, later, and... Um, when I, I actually found out about, um, that there were limitations on me, um, when I went to Biola, actually, ironically, it all comes back to Biola. Um, and I was hearing a complementarian perspective, um, for the first time and was noticing that I was like one of the only women at there in the Bible department because I did Bible and theology. And I was getting actually a lot more, like, um, I would say, in hindsight, um, gender-based discrimination from the students. 
Yeah. Um, but I yeah. I didn't really realize that's what it was at the time because I wasn't used to it. So I didn't understand, you know, little things like why they couldn't understand all of a sudden, you know, hear what I was saying. Like, I just thought I was like, oh, I just need to speak up louder, you know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just little quirks or like things I would think were like bad jokes um, weren't. Um, so I was told, you know, born by someone <laughs> well-meaning that... Some people were felt threatened by me um, because, and I said, "Well, why?" Um, they said, "You're we're afraid that women, you know, I don't know, might stop making pie or something." And so I thought it was funny. And then he wasn't laughing. I was like, "Oh, it's real. Okay, gotcha." Um, but you know, then I, I tended to think of those as isolated incidences. Um, nonetheless, um, I because I was getting more of a one-sided understanding of what the Bible taught in terms of gender, I switched over to the more of a complementarian interpretation. Um, I was still trying to reconcile it with my experience, and there was a discord, um, and trying to find my place in it, and I really didn't hear much of a, I talked to my dad, and my dad actually convinced me, like, no, like, this is what the Bible says about women in the church. I would ask questions and see you know, basically how the complementarian perspective measured up scripturally. Um, mm-hmm. And then in Ron Pierce's uh, class is where um, mm-hmm. I got introduced to an egalitarian perspective from the Bible on uh, mm-hmm. women in the home. And yeah. um, he gave us both the complementarian perspective, especially using Wayne Grudem and I think uh, Sosi from uh, yeah. Talbot. Yeah. And yeah. so we, we had you know, things that we're familiar with, very familiar with in terms of Biola, but we also got another additional perspective. And so um, I think for me, especially, I don't know, Biola taught me some good hermeneutical skills. So I used them and yeah. And so I became an egalitarian and again, so there we go. (laughs) And then what happened with um, your MDev program? Oh yeah. Later. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I first I was actually at Westminster Philly. Philly. Um <clears throat> so Nick and I met at Biola our final your final semester. My final semester. And I went mm-hmm. to Westminster uh, Philadelphia and then from there I went I ended up switching to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and uh that's where actually I got an internship with CVE um mm-hmm. with Mimi as my mentor. And there we go. <laughs> Yes, and after that, you had you had the um, courage to come on as a consultant with us. Yes, that's been a lot of fun for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, really, okay, yeah. And I'll, I'll just say this, yeah. Um, interning with CBE has been amazing, um, and I would recommend it to anyone. Um, you don't, okay. yeah, you don't do a lot of the stuff that a regular intern does, like I don't know, fetch coffee for people. Um, <laughs> just I don't know, I found that. that yeah my gifts and talents were recognized um and I got to do you know a lot of you know cool innovative things within reason I would say um and I got to contribute to an academic journal article early on um I got to work do some marketing things I got to um yeah I don't know I I think you had the international prayer walk at the time to coordinate so mm-hmm. I got to do that mm-hmm. So I would recommend it to anyone. Um, I think it's good, and you get and you get some pay. It's intern pay, but at least you know it's yeah. something. So. I don't get paid at my internship. Yeah, Nick did film. 
Well, I remember driving Allison back to her residence in Minneapolis and or in St. Paul, and we just the whole way to work and the whole way back, we just you know dreamt and strategized and. I just loved having you as an intern, Allison. We just we just could not stop dreaming and yeah, that and was strategizing. Really, that, <laughs> yeah, and then of course I had the pleasure of meeting Nick, and he was equally passionate from a converted complementarian to an advocate. Um, Nick, it just seems like this issue has been passion a passion of yours, and it's driven you even deeper into some biblical scholarship. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I. I Originally, I, I wrote a new book, or my first book, and my uh, it was one of those things that was on a Wesleyan distinctive, you know, one of their major theological ideas. And I was reading it going like, well, I mean, if this distinctive is true, how does it impact, you know, the Wesleyan Methodist kind of holiness movement's general egalitarian view? And mm-hmm. so I, I wrote kind of on that perspective. And so, yeah, I included that in my, my first book. So it's, yeah, it's, it is a, it is a passion of mine. I'd say too, just, um, for Nick, when he, he independently investigated, um, you know, egalitarianism versus complementarianism, I think mm-hmm. that really empowered him to realize that, yeah, he can, um, do biblical interpretation and investigate these kinds of things for himself. And it's really opened up, I think, biblical scholarship to him. Period. Um, I mean, he has a lot of different interests, obviously, um, but I think mm-hmm. that's kind of where it started. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, we've been doing this together for a while, haven't we? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. That's great to hear. It's really great to hear. So what are some, what do you see as the future direction of, um, I would say both uh, Christians for Biblical Equality and the egalitarian movement, because it started out where a lot of this like basic information, you know, just was not known in terms of like you know just simple things like oh my gosh, you mean helper does not mean subordinate underling that does what I say, you know, uh, you know to and even like oh head has a headship has a wider meaning, you know, it, we've kind of moved past that, um, and that yeah, was a unique contribution yeah. before, yeah. I'm really glad you pointed that out because very much in the early days, the egalitarian scholarship focused on word studies. What do words really mean? And in some ways, this parallels very succinctly the history of the abolitionist movement. You know, what does slave mean? Um, what do these What do these words then mean in a context? So we looked at word studies. We looked at you know systematic themes in scripture. And, and that, you know, we evolved almost in a parallel track to the abolitionist movement. And now we're looking at how do these words and themes impact human flourishing? And that's where we are right now. Of course, with slavery, it was abundantly obvious. But, you know, it really, it really took popularization, um, slave narratives, um, songs, artwork, the troubadours, the, the people who could put deep theology under the skin of everyone to say these are the consequences of a a pro-slavery worldview. And these are the consequences of a pro-male authority worldview. And they don't hold up biblically. They don't hold up up socially. The fruit 
is bad, the tree is bad. And that is where I think, you know, I, I wrote a chapter uh, on this in our book, uh, Global Vision for Gender Equality, that I was an editor uh, with the Spencers on. And this, this book kind of traces how these reform movements evolve in history and how the egalitarian movement has evolved equally. So deep thinkers, you know, thought people come together and they meet each other like the founders did and said, this, this does not, this is incoherent. Patriarchy as a biblical ideal is incoherent. The troubadours come along and popularize these more academic ideas, and they begin convincing masses, as you said earlier, there's been a shift, even in complementarian churches. And now with the Me Too, we're recognizing power imbalances shaped as God's ideal is deadly, and it's deadly around the world. Yeah. And it's not like these power imbalances like suddenly crept up. They were there all along. It's just that I think we're in a more of a position to actually hear some of these voices. Yeah. <laughs> right, and I think we're giving them greater attention because one of the consequences of the power imbalance is lack of empathy. Yeah. Right? And, and impunity, right? And dominance. And strict gender roles. And this is exactly what John Pryor identified in his The Scale uh, to li- of Likely Harassers. Like, what are the four things that need to be in place that make harassment very likely? Um, Prepared and Rich, the premarital inventory, did a similar study. You know, mm-hmm. what, are the, what are the telltale signs of an unhealthy and abusive couple? Powers of the top. Impunity follows. A lack of empathy follows. And here it is, strict enforcing of gender roles. Mm. Those four things are what Preparing and Rich, the largest premarital inventory in the world, and John Pryor in his study uh, of harassers found. And those are the kinds of things that complementarian theology advances. Now, we had a person, I know a person, a, good, a colleague who took the prepare and enrich premarital inventory, and she was a woman of color, and she married a, a white man, and, and, and she, she tested out on a statistically verifiable tool that, she, that her marriage would end in abuse. Whoa. And, the past, and the pastor said, oh, it's okay, oh, we can handle this, I can handle Uh-oh. it. I can deal with this. Kind of and, and, and all the prepared and rich teachers out there say, don't marry couples that show up on the devitalized scale. Yeah. And they married this couple, and 18 months later, the police were called to their home. Yikes. So, so we know this data exists. Preparing and rich has over 4 billion uh, data points. I mean, it's, it's science. You know, these airplanes don't fly for very far. We yeah. know it. Hmm. And yeah. humanitarians are cashing out on this as well. And John Pryor has made it clear. And really, and then just take a step into this even further. Look at the porn industry. This is, these, this is what the porn industry fosters. It fuels a power imbalance. It fuels impunity. It fuels strict gender roles. And, that's, and the dark web sells this stuff to people who orchestrate the rape of children because that's the greatest power imbalance you can have is raping a child and and so this is this is hugely important to our world and hugely important to the work that we do at cbe 
Yeah, and that's what I think a lot of people don't get about, um, you know, whether it's domestic violence, harassment. Um, underlying it all is not, quote, an anger problem. It's not that they, you know, just, quote, can't keep it in their pants. It's it's power imbalance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and however that's, you know, manifested, um, it could be through, you know, racial categories, um, gender um, discrimination. It could be other social factors. Economic yeah. and age-related but yeah. that's why, I mean, I literally can't take this idea that complementarian theology protects women and huh. leads to human flourishing. That is dead wrong. Yeah, that's not shown. Um, quite the opposite. Like, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> but egalitarians I, yeah. have to be careful, too, that they don't create power imbalances in their communities either. Yeah, that's exactly Because it's right. a human proclivity. Yeah. Yeah, that's the nice thing about power. It is truly, um, <laughs> it, it can go anywhere and it... It's a, it's a corrosive virus. It, it'll, it'll manifest anywhere it can. Well, okay, yeah, since we're an egalitarian podcast, I mean, we could talk all day about the Southern Baptist Convention and other things, but what are some problems that we've had? What are some power imbalances that have led to abuse within egalitarian organizations? Well, I just published a, bo- a blog on this, but I think it's, um, you know, sort of the personality cult um, figure who... Um, you know, I think people believe that if you publish a really great book, um, that uh, a person with enormous theological charisma, <clears throat> that you never have to really check deeper into character issues. Mm. Yeah. And I think we've become so accustomed in our social media um, world that, you know, a person can be just very clever with words, can be very charismatic, and that's all we need to know. You know, they agree with us. Social media studies have shown that you you aren't really engaging new ideas. Social media communities are very siloed. Yeah. And so, and what's even more terrifying is people engrossed in these silos do not believe that they have peer pressure active in those <laughs> yeah, communities. Yeah. That, that, so we, we, easily, we are easily blinded by that which is the deepest threat to our character and to, that, to the safety of others. We are blinded by that. And I, there's a good friend of CBEs who's part of one of the oldest African-American churches in the country. And he, I just love what he told me once. He said, in my church... You don't get to be a deacon until you're 50 years old. Huh. And, I, and I said, what? And he said, yes, because our church says you need to demonstrate your character before we put you in leadership. It doesn't mm. matter who you are. Mm. And, and while some of us may think that's extreme, I think it's the, the concept is really wise. And, and if you compare the fruit of the Spirit and you – and you look at the qualities of, of leadership outlined in uh, Paul's in Timothy, you know, there's a lot of overlap that people can, you know, G.K. Chesterton said, people uh, fall in predictable ways. Yeah. Hmm. And communities fall in predictable ways. So the yeah. point is, is to examine their character. The woman who was chair of our board for 12 years, Virginia Patterson, she said, you, you know, we, not, we have to inspect the work 
you know, that we produce at CBE, we, you have to continually examine and ask yourself, is this consistent with our mission? Is this the kind of work we want to do? And not just writing, but just overall work, uh, ministry work. Yeah. And so, you know, evaluation has to go a little bit further than this person has 12,000 likes on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And but we don't it, think that way. We don't realize it, but we don't no. think that way. We give the benefit of the doubt to the people we think our are our friends or our opinion leaders. Yeah. Without realizing it. Right. And there's a Sibylla effect where, you know, if you click, I agree with these issues, that's all you have to do. There's a whole yeah. other universe that exists beyond just, I give verbal assent to these ideas. That doesn't make you a moral person. It just means that you, with your mouth or with your yeah, <laughs> your you know, just or with your mouse, clicked, you know, a number of boxes. It doesn't make you a moral creature. You have to demonstrate. It's a little hard to do that on social media. So you get these schools of fish that swim around, and um, well, even you know, in places- even in like um, I would say church or parachurch organizations, um, mm-hmm. even where you see people acting in every day, you find in a lot of these places where there's abuse or harassment scandals, people mm-hmm. really they, they're shocked. Like I would have never thought so and so, you know, would have done it, even if they didn't really know that person for very long. As it turns out, you know, it's just kind of it, it's an interesting kind of. Um, I think this deception that like a whole community can be under. Um, uh, we had Griselle Medina on for a while. Pastor Griselle yeah. Medina. Yes. And um, she actually talked a little bit about how a lot of predators, um, they actually select um, some of these locations and they will willfully insert themselves into um, both powerful positions and key community positions. Um, they will actively <laughs> flatter the people around them. They will actively, you know, do all these things so that they are they, they, they understand this principle that we're talking about and they exploit it to their own ends. Well, it's very interesting that you say that, Allison, because I was speaking to a humanitarian colleague works in the field. Um, I, I won't mention where, but she said that would they've come to see that when churches, you know, in the global south, or you could you can use the same principle here, elevate men and marginalize the gifts of women those are the communities that are least likely to resist predators and trafficking of their children wow they just they just and it's 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 um that was her observation yeah just put it out there yeah yeah so you know the the story is don't you know elevate power imbalances you know no matter what form they take and you might be okay (laughs) accountability (laughs) accountability Right. Yeah. And I know, yeah, abuse is actually one of the topics, the top, you know, topics that CBE has always dealt with. Um, But there's Mm -hmm. a couple of others, too. Um, I I think you mentioned uh, marriage and family, obviously, um, and then church advocacy as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I just got back from a conference with the World Evangelical Alliance Women's Commission. And in their research over the last year, they said the world's women are most interested in addressing domestic violence. Mm. That is the issue that presses them the most. And so it's been on, it was on the forefront of the early founders of CBE because they very much saw the link between um, patriarchy and domestic violence and abuse. And it was certainly the case for Catherine Bushnell, the story of Kate, right, yeah. who worked as a doctor in China and later 
uh, with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and she saw the link between flawed Bible translations and abuse. And those those abuse issues are most intimately encountered in one's marriage, yeah. in one's family. And so those are definitely issues where you, where CBE, the greatest number of people come to us because of those concerns. Yeah. And they're all related. It's a and they're out. all related. <laughs> yeah. And, and it gets us outside of the idea of, you know, you do a word study and that'll change someone's mind, although yeah. that might. It gets us into the realm of you need a holistic worldview. You, you actually need a fundamentally Christian worldview in order Good. to kind of understand just how deep. And I mean, I feel like this is a very conservative thing to say, how deep sin goes. And it's one mm-hmm. of those things where, you know, if you're not willing to, I don't know, have a, a robust view of sin, it, it seems like a lot of this will just get mired in word studies and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, no, this is so much bigger than the word study, mm-hmm. although the word study could be a step towards helping and correcting mm-hmm. the caricature of something. But, you know, unless you're willing to live it, it seems kind of redundant to just get lost in the scholarly miasma. And I think that's why CBE's work is so powerful. Yeah. Well, and I like what you said about a, a deep, realistic view of sin and then an adequate and equally deep view of atonement. Yes. And that's where the early evangelicals were so strong. And I might put a plug in here for Ruth, for uh, Fleming Rutledge's new book on the crucifixion, if you haven't seen it. It's magnificent. Isn't it? It's just magisterial. It reminds me of Richard Hayes' book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. We have to ask ourselves, are we equally complicit with complementarian thinking and a low view, a weak view of the atonement. Because that's where the early evangelicals were super strong and it led to so much social reform. I wonder if we've fallen into a sinkhole around the atonement. I would say we do. Um, I wrote a blog post like a while ago called The Sin of Grace. And we just don't really have, I think, oftentimes in some of these places... (laughs) a robust understanding of, you know, why Jesus came, um, what, 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 what does the atonement mean, um, who was Jesus. Uh, and what I mean is, like, we, we think in terms of, we, we don't, we, we decontextual, we, we rip, who, who were the so-called sinners in the Bible that Jesus came and had solidarity with? And we take it away from the marginalized people and exploited people, and we put it on predators, and then we excuse them. Mm-hmm. Um, we absolve them of their sins, and we don't like hold any accountability or protection um, for the people that Jesus um, bonded himself with. And we also tend to do this thing where Jesus came to take care of my sin and guilt. Yeah. Like I was having, that's a huge argument I've been having with friends mm-hmm. of mine who was like, you know, the atonement's about our sin and guilt. I'm like, it includes our sin and guilt, yes. but it's never about your sin. Like you have a very, mm-hmm. I don't know, I didn't say this to him, but I was like, this is a very low view of, of sin and a very mm-hmm. individualized, decontextualized, centered kind of thing on yourself. It's Sin is so much bigger than what you do. It's what the human race has been doing for thousands and thousands yeah. of years. And I, I think one of the beauties of a, one of the benefits of a, a healthy view of the atonement is this concept of sanctification yeah. and demonstrating the fruit of a renewed life. And that's where you start to shut down impunity because you start to expect a newness of life. And yeah. Evangelicals, you know, preached on Galatians 2.20 more than any uh, group of Christians in history yeah. that not I, but Christ in me. 
and I think Rutledge gets at that in her wonderful book that we are we are living Christ as we live our new life in Him, and it's Christ in me, our hope of glory, and that I don't. Do you hear sermons on this very often? I certainly <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, no, no. I, and I, I think we've lost our vision for uh, the moral life and its consequences. Maybe we're, I, I, don't, I can't diagnose it. I can just say that this is one of the reasons why the early evangelicals said women and slaves and all people are clothed in Christ Amen. in as much as they are reborn in Christ. And this this, this breaks down the power balance. Do you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's yeah, we've kind of um, made, uh, in some, and I'm talking more of a Sikh um, community rather than every evangelical community. Um, it's, I think uh, maybe some of these are loose, abstract concepts that aren't really lived. Because, you know, when push comes to shove, it's what do you do when you have a report of abuse? Do you recognize it as abuse? You know, are you actually actively defending and protecting the victim? Or are you, you know, explaining away? Are you trying to sweep it under the rug? Are you trying to minimize it? You know, it it ends up coming mm -hmm. to like, it shows what our deeply held convictions actually are. Do we really yeah. see Christ in the yeah. people around us? Or are we seeing... Or, or only certain people getting, you know, the privileges right. of, quote, grace or, you know, whatever we have going. <laughs> well, these, these are all really important concerns to discuss. Um, yeah. Th thank you for raising those questions, Allison. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so before, um, yeah, before we wrap up, um, I guess, what would you say would be the future of, and this is maybe hard to predict, um, yeah, of course. Polish your crystal ball, uh, Mimi. Yeah, because you can never really know. Because, um, you know, we, we CBE started with, you know, really bringing these deep, like, theological um, and biblical ideas to the surface so that they were widely mm -hmm. available. And now it seems, you know, there's still people that don't know. But mm -hmm. it seems like there's a critical mass of people who do know. Um, right, and. Right. What 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 are the next steps? Where where does CBE fit in? Do you think now and the future? Well, I, I think the need for good theological and biblical historical research will always be with us, yeah. and that part can never end. And it's it's definitely where we get the greatest traction online. So we will continue being a theological egalitarian think tank always. As far as popularization, uh, I think. The real, the real challenge here, and we've touched on it today, is creating a truly biblical and a truly Christian worldview. Mm. And until we dismantle patriarchy and places uh, which offend human flourishing and therefore offend scripture, we have much work to do. So we are working deeply, as I said, with the humanitarian world and higher education. We are working very much um, in the academy and in uh, the places where our, our ideas, our theological ideas about men and women play out in everyday life in marriage. So we're creating, a, uh, we're becoming more of a publishing house. CD is doing much more publishing. We're soon to release a resource um, on abuse and domestic violence and, me, and the Me Too. So that'll come out at the end of the spring. <clears throat> nice. 
And I think uh, just trying to, we're very active in an organization, um, a humanitarian organization that's pulling together gender equality, uh, humanitarian work, and Christian faith. And those three things have never come together like the Celtic circle of the Trinity. But in the, if you have humanitarian work, uh, uh, overlap as one ring, overlapping with Christian faith, another ring, and then overlapping that with gender equality. When these three th- things are harmonized, like when you pull nu- nuclear particles together, there's a lot of energy there. And that, I think, is, is um, the next horizon and where there's a lot of effort. Uh, being invested. So why can't humanitarian organizations that are Christian see the value biblically and socially of gender equality? Because when that happens, there's a lot of energy and positive change in human flourishing. We see that in churches. Um, Of course, you do have to address power imbalances all along the way. But that's part of this worldview that we're working on and it's exciting.